This is the podcast for Black Virginia News. The first and only platform that covers all of Black This Virginia. is the podcast for Black Virginia News. The first and only platform that covers all of Black Virginia. Okay, everybody, this is Lauren Burke. Uh, this is the Black Virginia News podcast. I have Maurice Hawkins with me. Uh, Maurice Hawkins is a top politico in the Virginia Beach area, in Virginia Beach. Uh, this is a person that if you want to know what the hell is going on politically in Virginia Beach, this is the person you talk to. This is the person who does the real work, not just the talking of the campaign. This is the door knocker. This is the person who knows who to speak to, knows what events to go to, and so much more. Uh, I'm Lauren Burke. I uh, have worked in politics for over 20 years. I've worked in the media for about the same amount of time. I'm the publisher of Black Virginia News. Uh, We are going to go over some of the most important races of the 2023 cycle. There are a lot of them. I think this is a special cycle, a very interesting cycle. We're going to start with the black folks because Black Virginia News centers black people. Uh, I got to say on the top to the audience, I'm sort of in a bad mood here, uh, <laughs> which unrelated to what we're going to talk about is June 7. And I just found out that a friend of mine, Bill Spriggs, passed away. He was the chief uh, economist for the AFL-CIO. And he was uh, from Virginia. In fact, his father was a Tuskegee Airman. He taught at Howard. He attended uh, Norfolk State. Unbelievable guy. Uh, do more on that. And I'll, I'm certainly going to post something on Black Virginia News about him. He was, he was really extraordinary. But to get into it, Maurice, here with these races, um, you know, let's start with the most obvious one first. And that would be SD18. <laughs> Louise Lucas. In this corner, Lionel Sproul. Sproul votes with Republicans against gun safety laws. And Sproul backed an anti-choice bill that Planned Parenthood attacked for dangerously chipping away yeah. abortion. Yeah, I'm gonna go there and, and I just I know you could not have guessed that I was going to go there. Uh, I'll let you start. I've talked you're a little just, bit. You're just coming off the top rope, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. We're not, we're not going to wade into the water. We're no, we're not. Go. We're not. Yeah, we're not so, counting down to the biggest one. We're starting with the biggest one. Okay. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, you absolutely have to classify this race as clash of the titans. Uh, you know, between Senator Louise Lucas and Senator Lionel Rule. I mean, both of them have been in the Senate um, for quite some time. You know, Louise being the senior. And uh, there's just some interesting dynamics with that race. It seems like Louise has broader support throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. I think Lionel has cultivated a nucleus of support inside the district. Uh, You know, so it's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out. And I think, you know, with their race specifically, but I think in a lot of Democratic primaries more broadly, uh, I think we're going to get a sense of what the electorate throughout Virginia is looking for in the Democratic leadership. And when you look at SD18, you're looking at two people who couldn't be more different stylistically. You know, whereas Lucas is more in your face, um, you know, really strong, you know, I'm a fighter, you know, she's a political pugilist. She likes to mix it up with the other side, uh, where Sproul is probably a little bit more a 
of a diplomat, uh, a little bit more, you know, a little, I guess you kind of, you, you just probably more apt to massage the relationships to get where you're trying to go. I mean, both of them are very effective legislators. Uh, I think the sad part is, uh, and I think we've talked about this before, that we're going to lose so much uh, political experience in the General Assembly by one of them losing. So I think if there's um, an, an, a lose-lose situation, it's the fact that we'll lose one of those powerful voices in the General Assembly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that this is, you know, really an unfortunate moment in so many ways that at mm-hmm. the end of the day, uh, Virginia loses a black senator, uh, no matter mm-hmm. what happens. And, you know, people can say whatever they want about representation. The, the Commonwealth of Virginia is 20% black and the Senate of Virginia, I think is 12% black at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of this moment at all. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I do think that of the two, uh, Louise Lucas is a, a much more important player on the political field than Lionel Spruill mm-hmm. for a lot of very obvious reasons. It's chief of which right. is she's just been around a lot longer. And of course his position to be the chair of the finance committee in the Senate, which of course would be the first time ever that anybody black has ever gotten that. So that's huge. Uh, I see some strange dynamics around this. Um, you know, the fact that everybody in the Senate, um, except for Janet Howell, is stone silent on this race makes no sense to me. The fact that you have the click up in Nova openly going out for Lionel makes no sense to me. The fact that Terry McAuliffe is stone silent after Louise Lucas was his co-chair in 2021 makes no sense to me, particularly when he's not stone silent uh, with the Foy holler race. The greatest senator to ever serve in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Senator Louise Lucas. Demanding justice for the Portsmouth 19. Uh, it, it, it is always to me very revealing to see what happens in the Democratic Party when black people get really close to power, when real power, I'm not talking about performative you know, uh, renaming streets and statues. I'm talking about money, you know, and that is what politics is about, the allocation of money. And so now we see a lot of silence. <laughs> we see, like, people backing Lionel, you know, and nothing wrong with Lionel. There's nothing wrong with either of them. Obviously, you're right. Stylistically, there's a huge difference. Um, I actually think that her uh, game is endearing to a lot of voters. I mean, and a lot of, yeah. quote, real people, you know. Right. And when you spend all your time in the salons of, you know, upper level politics, what you find out is that that is not representative of, quote, real people who <laughs> are like blue collar dropping their kids off at soccer practice. And we're sitting around talking about, you know, some esoteric thing that most people wouldn't be talking about. Right. Uh, so I, I do think that she has a huge advantage here. Uh, and I, you know, I would be surprised if she loses. Um, and that's my that's my take on it. I, I think it's a, again, unfortunate moment, but here it comes, you know, and, and shout out to Laura Vizella. She did a nice job with the profile the other day in the uh-huh. Washington Post. Uh, really right. going over some things about both of these people, uh, Lionel Sproul and Louise Lucas, that were very interesting. You know, we forget that some of these lawmakers have seen the sweep of, of Southern racial history in the South, you know, and the fact that both of them both come from a working class blue collar background is the understatement of the year. Uh, they have come a long way in their lives to get to this point, and it, it is it is incredible when you think about that distance. You, you see the Glenn Youngkins and the the people who were you know 
Actually, Glenn Youngkin wasn't necessarily born on third base, but you do see a lot of politicians who were born on third base and think that they hit a triple and then they just yeah, sort of walk in. He was, he was definitely between second and third. You think so? I thought his father was <laughs> fairly blue. You know, I mean, it wasn't like he was, it wasn't like the Trump thing, you know, somebody's handing right. him five million bucks, you know, that thing. Uh, right. But I, I get you, he wasn't in, in you know, shanty level poverty, but he wasn't yeah. like, I mean, he, he he's a self-made uh, new money dude, I think. Right. I mean, so right. but I get, I get what you're saying. Um, uh, certainly, certainly, Louise Lucas and Lionel Spruill come like far further than Glenn Youngkin. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, so, yeah. I mean, they're definitely, they're definitely, uh, getting they're probably getting up at 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 that <laughs> 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 compared to where Youngkin was. So. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and you know, you just come from these these Ameri- these ridiculous historic markets. She, she being the first welder at the shipyard, first female welder at the shipyard in nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. So and 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 a, and a mother at fourteen years old. You know, it's just the challenges are are really incredible. So anyway, yeah. that's and I, the other thing with Senator Lucas. I mean, not I mean, she has political legs. I mean, I mean, just the amount of people that she has brought into politics i mean you know her her daughter's on you know portsmouth city council uh, you know just other folks that she has uh really given lift to the political career so i mean there's a lot of people politically that are indebted to senator lucas for their political careers that's absolutely right um and i think that that i, I think again she's only one of two black political machines in my view in commonwealth right now the other being bob right. scott and i, I know right. the scott machine is very humble they don't walk around mm-hmm. talking about oh we're the scott machine but th- there's a machine there i mean when you can pick oh, yeah. up your phone and say oh i need 50 people at an event i mean it, it just it can just happen so she's got that level of influence and power no doubt about it yeah so it'll be very interesting to see what happens yeah it's got i i, I think the one final thought on you know the SD18 race is you know we all know that black women are the base of the Democratic Party, so it's going to be interesting to see how you know black women who live in SD18 view that primary. You know, are they going to throw their support behind Lucas? And if I think of if it's a representative number, she has a really strong chance of winning. Or is Lionel's appeal because, you know, the majority of that Senate district is comprised of his old Senate district, you know, does that give him the strategic advantage? So I, I see pathways to victory for both of them. You know, it's just going to be which one has the strongest closing argument in these 13 days remaining um, at, at recording time of, the show, of today's podcast. That's right. I, I think that we are hearing that the turnout in that district is is more than the average of these Senate races, uh, yeah. with the exception of, and we'll get to it, uh, Aird versus Morrissey. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I'm Hala Ayala, and I won't let them take away our reproductive freedom. As delegate, I passed a law protecting access to abortion in Virginia. In the Senate, I'll stand up to radical Republicans, because private decisions should stay that way. Paula Ayala, Democrat for State those Republican Senate. bills right in the trash. I'm Jennifer Carroll Foy, and as delegate, I ripped up Republican restrictions on abortion to protect your rights and mine. Let their dangerous gun bill uh, go up in smoke. Speak about is SD33, which is uh, the former delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy versus mm. the former delegate Paula Ayala. Um, that right there is very interesting. <laughs> you know, again, I'll let you go first. 
Oh, well, I think the big thing about uh, SD33, I think when it was first announced that uh, Foy was going to be running against Hala, Foy had what I would imagine tremendous support um, from you know, different segments of the Democratic Party coalition, you know, you have your, your progressive wings, your labor wings, you know, they all seem to be coalescing around her, you know, uh, her second place finish in the Democratic primary uh, for governor uh, against Terry McAuliffe definitely has to win, you know, win behind her sales. And I think that uh, delegate, former delegate Hala Ayala, you know, she's been gradually, you know, you know, clawing, scratching, and uh, pulling her way into this race, and you know, full disclosure, I, I know Holla. Uh, she's a good friend of mine, so I, you know, I definitely don't want to be uh, lack of transparent in my recording. But it really, just from the thirty thousand feet point of view, it really feels like Holla has a really good ground game that she's leveraging. Uh, you know, Holla cut her teeth being like a volunteer leader for the Obama campaign. Um, you know, you know, many years ago. And I think she leans on experience heavily. You know, she was definitely omnipresent when Spanberger was running and her um, her race for Congress last year, where she was able to make a lot of grassroots connections, as well as the grassroots connections she's developed over the time when she's ran for office herself. So uh, I think, you know, California has a lot of, you know, labor support, but Holla has cut into that with some of the endorsements that she's received. Um I definitely think probably it's more of your historical, you know, establishment figures have rallied behind Holla to maybe try to give her the, the rocket fuel to get her across the finish line. But, you know, I think uh, Foy has a lot of resources at her disposal, which is going to make that a, you know, a, a challenging um, um, fight for uh, Ayala. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. So, I mean, full disclosure is all over the place. I know most of the people we're going to talk about today. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I know most of them just from, uh, you know, from the time that I was consulting yeah. Lieutenant Governor when he was in office, like, particularly the senators, anybody near the Senate, but also yeah. just knowing them from just being around Virginia politics, you know. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things is this is an embarrassment of riches, this whole scenario, this whole cycle, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, BS anybody here. I'm for Jennifer Carol Foy. Uh, it's not that right. I have anything against Holla at all. I just yeah. think Jennifer Carol Foy sitting up there as a VMI grad with a law degree and uh-huh. a husband doing do-goody stuff. And then she runs uh-huh. statewide and it's very exciting. And then she comes in second, which I think nobody expected. I mean, she came in yeah. in front of a state senator, Jennifer McClellan, who is now Congresswoman McClellan, who had a lot uh-huh. more time on the books than she did. And uh, she's got now this built coalition uh, with regard to not just Michael Bills, but labor. Um, And I just think she's a sharper knife in the drawer. You know, it's just as simple as that. It's not against anybody else. It's just I look at the situation and, you know, we are always talking about the bench and who's on the bench of the party and who's coming up and this and that. And Mm -hmm. I do sense, and this is not something, you know, specific to Virginia. (laughs) Okay, Mm -hmm. I mean, something I've noticed across Democratic politics is when we get somebody who is uh, got some sort of vibrant, exciting personality Mm -hmm. that's black that comes along has got some mojo, there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. pushing against that. I mean, we saw that with Barack Obama and the Clintons. Mm -hmm. We sure as hell saw it with Justin Fairfax in Virginia. Uh, uh-huh. And I feel like we're seeing it right now with, with uh, Jennifer Carroll Foy because nobody can convince me that it makes any sense that somebody who ran statewide 
comes in second, although a distant second. I understand, obviously, Terry came in way ahead of everybody. But still, right. she came in second. She's got all the look of somebody who is the future of your party. And mm-hmm. there, you know, and we got Ralph Northam out here and Terry McAuliffe out here backing the other candidate. <laughs> you know, it's like, what, right. is, what is going on? You know, so I, I just don't, I don't sense that Holla is going to run statewide again. And maybe I'm wrong. But mm-hmm. I don't sense that she's sitting there going, okay, I'm going to run for governor. I mean, at some point you have to figure out, we got to, you know, the, the, the Democratic Party at some point has to figure out what their future is and who their future is. And who right. can beat the Glenn Youngkins and the Jason Miarezes and, you know, I mean, right. who is that exactly? <laughs> right? Who is yeah. that exactly? Who is that person? You know, and, and if it's not somebody like Jennifer Floyd, then, okay, I, tell me who the hell it is. Somebody with, right. a, with a VMI degree. We just had a governor with a VMI degree. And then mm-hmm. a, an attorney, a working attorney. You know, I'm just, I'm a little bit annoyed when I see people with her type of resume who are constantly mm-hmm. being told... Or, or being shown the, the this sort of attitude of who do you think you are? You know, I'm a little tired right. of that. Uh, to say right. something nice about Holler, though, I will say this. She got more votes than Terry McAuliffe by 8,000, okay? Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that walking into that voting booth in, in 2021, you had 8,000 people who said, I'm voting for Holla and not Terry. So what was that? Um, you know, I think Holla is not a terrible candidate. I just think Foy is a better candidate. So there, there it is. I, I would just, you know, you know, pivot slightly, you know, you know, beg to differ, you know, um, in, in my regards. I mean, I think I think Foy is a formidable political force in Virginia politics, and I think she will be for quite some time. I, I think that with Holla, you know, it's just my personal observations, my interaction with her. You know, she's very personable. I mean, she's a grinder, you know. Um, you know, she, you know, she's a machine when it comes to field operations. I mean, she understands it at a, at a molecular level. Uh, I think you're seeing that being deployed in this race. I think that if, if there's going to be a difference maker in this race, it's going to be who is marshalling the the best resources on the doors in, the, in these closing days of this campaign. And, you know, from what I'm seeing, at least I'm, you know, gathering this from, you know, different sources and, you know, observations on social media that Howell is doing that. And that that's how she's cut her teeth. Um and again, Hollis ran statewide as well, you know, won the Democratic primary for LG in uh, 2021, you know, was, you know, the candidate in 2021, had more votes than Terry McAuliffe, as you just pointed out. So I think the interesting thing, once again, which is similar to SD18, the only difference is, whereas SD18, you have, you know, some people who have, who have history in the General Assembly and Spruill and Lucas, you know, uh, Carol Foy and Ayala, you know, they're, they're younger in the game, they're younger people, but, you know, again, both have vibrant personalities, vibrant experience, and vibrant basis of support, so it'll be interesting to see how um, they this race shakes out, for sure. No, absolutely, I totally agree. Uh, yeah. That's going to be an exciting one. Uh, not, it's going to be exciting, but I don't know if it's going to be as exciting as this um, next one. <laughs> as many of you know, I've spent the better part of the last decade fighting for issues important to Virginians like the environment, reforming our criminal justice system, investing in affordable housing, fighting for Virginia's health care, and preventing gun violence. When times got tough, LaCherise worked harder, put herself through school, 12-hour shifts at a factory. In the legislature, she worked just as hard to help people. Affordable health care, good schools, and safe streets. And for women to have the right to choose. For my LaCherise, is incumbent state senator joe morrissey 
versus former delegate Lasharis Aird. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, obviously a very closely watched race. And once again, I'll let you go first. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, here's the thing about it, right? This is definitely a it's This is more a proxy fight within the Democratic Party than I think just even if just a primary between Morrissey and Elasharie's Aaron. I think really the backdrop of this race is, you know, the Democratic Party fully embracing reproductive health rights in the Commonwealth of Virginia and, you know, pro-choice forces viewing Joe Morrissey as a liability on that argument, you know, and not to mention, you know, Morrissey has had a checkered past and a, and a, a, um, a number of fronts, you know, uh, we don't have enough time in this podcast to go over all the different things that Morrissey has been uh, um, attached to that have been unfavorable, you know, in a, in a wide variety of circles, both within the Democratic Party and then, you know, the Commonwealth, Virginia at large, um, you know, Aired has a lot of support, you know, with the pro-choice communities. Uh, you know, she's been in the General Assembly. You know, I think that, you know, she's waging as formidable of a race as she possibly can. I mean, Morrissey historically has been a very slippery character to unseat politically. People have tried and have failed miserably. But I think right now he's definitely on defense, probably the first time I've seen in a long time. And, you know, pretty much the entire democratic apparatus in virginia is coming behind aired to get her across the finish line so we'll see if morrissey has enough um you know skills to navigate a really onslaught of resources and personalities behind team aired yeah um i you know i think that this is going to be um you know i i think if i had to pick I, this is really a number two right after uh lucas and sproul in terms of just what it would mean, right? So if mm -hmm. you can sense a disconnect between the party apparatus and the establishment wing mm -hmm. of these parties and the voter on the ground, this would be a pretty good uh, guidepost, right? Because, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. if, if Morrissey yeah. ends up winning, what that would tell you is, wow, <laughs> you know, there is a disconnect, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that kind of has my spidey sense tingling a little bit is, of course, that Aird raised a ton of money in 2021 yeah. and lost anyway. Now, you yeah. can certainly ascribe that to the fact that Glenn Youngkin, his, his ground game with regard to Southwest and just some of the places where I think Terry didn't go, uh, yeah. pushed a lot of other people over the edge. And we saw that in a lot of races, not just La Cherise Ayer's race. Uh -huh. But her loss was a shocker. Like, I thought yeah. that, that was one of the ones where I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, how the hell did... did... And that, that's one where you say, well, she's losing because of somebody else's wave, you know, uh, uh -huh. against her. Um, the other thing I think that is going to be interesting to see now, Morrissey's coming off of a rough go in terms of the primary, the congressional primary against... Uh, right. against McClellan, where she just crushed everybody, you know? Right. And I think that, to me, is more of a tell as to what is about to happen, <laughs> you know, in 13 days more than anything else. It, it's, yeah. Obviously, these races are so determinant on who your opponent is, you know? Yeah. I mean, would Barack Obama have been Barack Obama if he didn't go up against the, a John McCain who picked somebody he shouldn't have picked for VP? I mean, who knows, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was a closer race with Mitt Romney. So, I mean, who, you know, who mm -hmm. knows? But but in, in in these types of things, it's kind of like in a primary, we have a lower level of turnout and you have a sitting incumbent versus a challenger, though somebody who really effectively is kind of an incumbent-like because she was just mm -hmm. in the General Assembly. It's a hard thing to judge. And I, I, everything tells me that, yeah, this is the moment where 
you know, she should win this, right? Like, it, it feels yeah. like that. But I'm not a big believer in, you know, going with what I... I don't think Twitter is real life at all. I mean, no, it's not. Beto O'Rourke would be the governor of Texas, you know. Um, yeah. But I just... I think this is going to be more interesting than I think people want it to be, <laughs> you know, or yeah. people are suspecting. And I don't know. I just wait to see what happens. I think Morrissey des- definitely has a lot of fans, you know. I saw him uh, outside the the uh, funeral of Richard Stewart, the historian in Petersburg who recently passed away. And I just, part of why I think, you know, you would think he would have trouble is he hasn't been able to practice law because he doesn't have his law license. And one of the things that have made him legend in the black community is representing black people who had had no uh, legal representation and doing it with mm-hmm. a real, a real uh, emotional fervor that, that permeated throughout the black community in Petersburg. And people remember stuff like that. You know, it's not, that's not a small thing. Uh, and I, I just think that that's, and I also think, frankly, I, I do think that with all the personal stuff that you're seeing, I do think there is a block of voters that doesn't care about any of that. I, I think that the white voters may care more than your blue collar black folks, but we'll see. Well, I, 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 well, I, I would also say too, is that, you know, if this was say in, you know, is, um, original district, you know, that probably would resonate, but this is a new battle space, you know, there's new parts of, um, the district that comprises SD 13 and and I think the real big argument will be is 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 reproductive health rights and it's as animating of a of a of an issue that is going to mobilize voters to come out for air uh against Morrissey you know that's really going to be what I think the big question um because there's so many you know pro-choice groups that are rally behind air and very in a very robust manner um, to try to get across the finish line. I think that's going to, and not only just for that race, I just think it's, it's kind of going to foretell what we're going to see this November in the general elections. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, th- this one will definitely verify. I mean, I always ask people when they're knocking doors all freaking day, like, what are they saying at the doors? And people are saying that, that, that the abortion issue is coming up at the doors. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I do hear yeah. other things like transportation. I mean, I hear stuff I'm like, really? I mean, because that's not really an yeah. issue I was thinking about. And so yeah. this will verify whether or not the abortion issue is something that is really, really resonant, resonating uh, with everybody. And, you know, again, I, I'm not a big fan of throwing out predictions. I just think, I just don't like throwing out predictions. But I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what I would predict in this one. Um, again, it just, the, the signals feel like, certainly feels like air, but so much of that is the, is the sort of inside game that I always have uh-huh. to remind myself is not the real world of when somebody goes to vote, you know? And the, and the, the other thing too, that you got to take into consideration is that, you know, Voting is already happening, right? right? People are voting today. So this is not like a situation where it's like, it's not like the Super Bowl where, oh, we wait until this date and time when we play the game and whoever has the most points at the end wins. Like, you know, Air could be winning right now or Morrissey could be winning right now, depending upon their turnout operations and what issues resonating with voters. Like, and so, and that goes for all these races. So I think that's something to take into consideration as well. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If that's what it is, then you can, t- then that would probably uh, be a thing, good, a good thing for her because there is a huge turnout number going on in that district. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that, that would, that, that would say to me that 
that would probably benefit her, you know, but I, I don't, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's kind of, I haven't been in that district long enough to really know what the hell I'm talking about. So I'm not really wanting well, to. You know, I mean, all of these are new districts. So whatever right. rules that you That's had right. in the past, you got to throw them out, you know, because right. right. you just, you know, we're all learning how they're going to perform. And these are primaries. These, these aren't general elections. <laughs> right. So, right. so I mean, you got to have a more dialed in, electorate but it's going to be a smaller electorate even with all the amount of money that's being spent you know all the advertising that's that's going out there you know both in real world and digital space you know still those dialed in democrats are going to be ones that are going to decide who's going to win these races yeah no absolutely um okay let's just skip over for one second uh sd04 and go to sd21 senate district 21 um we have a very interesting primary <laughs> between yeah. Andrea McClellan and Angelia Williams Graves. Right. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we're we're speaking now as if you Virginians out there know who we're talking about. By the way, I'm not going to go into <laughs> a big bio biographical thing on all these people, but you know, right. I, I think anybody who's nerdy enough to be listening to this type of podcast would know who we're talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> but. But uh, Angelina, uh, Angelina Williams Graves is a sitting House of, uh, member of the House of Delegates. And Andrea McClellan is someone who's run a few times before for various things. And it didn't surprise me we tried to run for the Senate. Uh, one of the things that Andrea McClellan ran for, not to be confused, of course, with uh, our Congressman, uh, Congresswoman uh, Jennifer McClellan, uh, but she, she ran for Lieutenant Governor in 2021. Uh, I actually think that Angelia Williams Graves is going to win this, probably going away. But you tell me what you think. I think I think it's a battle of resources. I think uh, Andrew McCullen has, you know, definitely has a, a sizable advantage in the, in the resource game. Uh, you know, she is, you know, battling vote for vote uh, with Angela Williams Graves. I mean, she's, you know knocking doors all over the place uh you know angela wins great i has a lot of establishment support behind her uh but but i think angela andrea is really leaning in on to you know the field operations you know trying to out communicate her dealing with people directly um she's not let that dissuade her um again i think it's you know i think the district is almost almost like a 50 50 split you know black white you know or more like i think it's like 40 percent um black 42 percent white something like that um so there's there's some interesting dynamics there i mean both of them have experience in, in norfolk local government you know Andrew william grace being a former member of city council or current member of the general assembly andrea being a current member of, of um uh, norfolk city council um both of them are very familiar with retail politics politics matter of fact i was in an event yesterday um and both of them were there you know, you know, shining bright. So, you know, <laughs> right. neither candidate is seeding round to the other candidate. I'll say that. And I think once again, it goes to, you know, those dialed in Democrats, you know, who has the best turnout operation, um, you know, who's communicating with voters during early voting, leveraging that asset. Uh, I think all those taking place. I think the thing is, in every race that we're that we've talked about already, and what we're and what we're going to talk about, there's a pathway to victory for either candidate. So, right, um, right. you know, it's just a matter of, you know, right, right now is really going to be based on how good your your campaign team is, their ability to execute on the ground, how they're talking to voters. Um, 
And I think in, in uh, the SD21 race, they, they've kept it rather positive. You know, they really have not gone after each other personally. You know, if, you know, we haven't seen the level of, uh, you know, aggression that I think you saw maybe in SD18 and in the early part of uh, SD33. So, you know, kudos to um, Graves and McClellan for keeping the race on the issues and keeping it focused on the voters. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's a great example of, two good candidates with a lot of degree of qualification all you know yeah. running against each other and, and and their names are similar Angelia and Andrea um no yeah, they, they, yeah. it's going to be it's going to be a very interesting a lot of these a lot of these races um man it is going to be it's going to tell us i think you know little things i'm sure that everybody who prognosticates will make more of the results than actually uh-huh. is there to make but yeah. This one is a is interesting, almost like a sleeper because so many everybody else is paying attention to SD thirteen and eighteen and thirty three, yeah. <laughs> a little bit of a sleeper, but not that much of a sleeper because it's in Hampton Roads, right. which is the you know the breadbasket right. of Democratic voters in, in Virginia. Um, right. So I, you know I don't have too much more to say about it other than that certainly it'll be queued up and 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 bookmarked on election night uh, on June twenty. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 a big time it's a big time primary because, like you said before, I mean, Norfolk is what I call like the you know it's, it's the, the the blue the blue sapphire, you know, of the Democratic Party. You know, like you know, Norfolk is such a critical uh, municipality um, in statewide elections. So having the um, you know whoever's going to be the, the state senator in that race is going to you know figure heavily you know in statewide politics uh when we go up for governor in 2025 so you know they will have a lot to say in that regard as a state senator absolutely absolutely um let us take a look at sd04 sd04 right. is got in on the democratic side on the republican side is a sitting state senator named David Suderline. <laughs> he was just sitting there waiting to see who he's going to go up against, libertarian Republican. Uh, but on the Democratic side, there are three people running. Uh, Trish White Boyd, Luke Pretty, and D.A. Pierce. <laughs> Which, you know, we'll get into this, but uh, <laughs> this is one of these ones where it's like somebody pops onto the ballot and you say to yourself, okay, why is that person exactly there? You have a member right. of the city council and you have somebody who's the chief of staff of a retiring senator, John Edwards. Luke uh-huh. Pretty is, is the chief of staff of the retiring, retiring senator who's been there forever. And then you have Trish White Boyd, who's a member of the city council. And then you all of a sudden get this black candidate named D.A. Pierce who who shows up on the ballot. Right? So, so I, I guess, you know, I guess through my laughter, I guess what I'm saying, I'll just say it. I mean, this is one of these where you say to yourself, okay, who put this guy on the ballot to split this vote, split the black vote right. in this race? And, you know, this is another, I would say, embarrassment of uh, Rich's situation. Luke Pretty's a good guy. Trish White Boyd yeah. is, is a great candidate. Uh, yeah. What do you say? What do you think? Uh, I think it's gonna be a. I think it's a little wide open. You know, um, you know, you might want to give a little credit to the Edwards apparatus that might rally behind the chief of staff. So, um, and, and definitely that could benefit on name ID front. But again, a three primary. It'd be interesting to see how it shakes out. Yeah, I mean, I think that the. Uh... You know, we have seen situations where staffers have run and the boss did not endorse that staffer, <laughs> right? right? Well, yeah. last week, Senator Edwards did, in fact, endorse Luke Pretty. So it's yeah. not like it's in the bag or anything. I mean, you'd be, it'd be surprising, I think, to a lot of people <laughs> how, yeah. that, how that doesn't sometimes happen. 
Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, a race to be watching and a place to, to watch. And, and, you know, the 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 other races, they're not necessarily... Uh, well, actually, let's do the house folks first. <clears throat> right. We get into that. Uh, HD 96, which I think you're very familiar with. Tell us about your familiarity. This is Susan Hippen, who is, of course, helped... Every campaign that I can think of down in the area of HD 96 over the years, in a a four-way, a four-way primary that involves a non-incumbent sitting member of the House of Delegates, uh, Kelly Fowler, and then two challengers, uh, Brandon Hutchins and Sean Montiero. I I have some strong feelings about this race. I'm sure you do, too. Uh, And and again, I'll let you, you know more than I do about it. I'll let you go first. Well, funny, funny enough, I actually live in uh, SD. I mean, it's not SD. We, we just did the Senate House District ninety six. So I'm, you know, very familiar with the dynamics of this race. I mean, there's a four way primary. You know, uh, you know, you know, Susan Hippen was the first candidate to file. Uh, Hutchins and Sean Montero they filed um, in late 2022, early 2023, and you know at the literally the 11th hour, you know, Delegate Fowler decides um, that she was going to run in HD uh, 96 after you know intimating that she wanted to run in the Senate primary for Senate District 22, and then not running a Senate District 22, and then, from my understanding, communicated to several of her colleagues, and I believe on the House floor, that she wasn't going to run for office at all, and then, you know, had a, and had a complete 180 and got in the race, actually endorsed Susan Hippen in that race. So, you know, if you're talking about probably the bizarre primary of Virginia politics, it's, it's HD 96 for sure. Um, you know, three to, three to four candidates have, you know, paramilitary experience of uh, um, been having the most experience as a you know, retired uh, master chief of the United States Navy. Uh, Brandon Hutchins, you know, he, I think he did maybe 11, 12 years in the United States Navy. And, um, and uh, Sean Montero, who was a retired uh, Air Force colonel uh, and an Air Force Academy graduate. So from a pedigree standpoint, you know, all four challengers have a lot of, you know, experience uh being active in the community you know brandon hutchins was on the redistricting commission um ran for city council in 2020 uh sean Montero, first-time candidate uh you know kelly fowler you know she came in in 2017 in that initial blue wave um that was kind of riding the energy from like the, the women's march you know has really strong uh, activist um background um but it's you know it's it's really been a interesting primary to say the least because um, I think the big picture is what type of representation are we going to have in HD ninety six because it's a new primary um, so just a lot to kind of unpack you know in regards to uh, um, the, the four candidates you know running I mean three of them running against the sitting member of the general assembly yeah exactly I mean I think this is uh, I think it's Hippens to lose. That's kind of how I view it, even though you do have a sitting member of the House of Delegates sitting in there in the race, but outside of her typical district area, there's clearly something going on in the party that is, oh, we're not really all that excited about Kelly Fowler. Uh, Whether that's fair or not, of course, is debatable because typically the party does back the the sitting member no matter who it is. (laughs) <laughs> you know, right. I mean, to get right. back to Morrissey for just one second, uh, SD13, I mean, you saw a great example of that 
four years ago where it was, oh, we're backing Morrissey no matter what. Mm-hmm. We're backing who it is that's the incumbent, you know. And yeah. in this case, you're not seeing that. It really, I think, goes to uh, the, you know, and you saw you, you saw the endorsements of uh, Hippin. Um, I think today Eileen Philicorn <laughs> is endorsing Hippin. And um, uh, I, I just think that it would be surprising to me if Susan Hippin did not win. Uh, there's nothing against anybody else. I actually think, again, you're right. I mean, it's yet yet another, you know, and particularly in these places where the military, which in Virginia is almost every place, but particularly in Virginia Beach. Uh, well, well, know, not, well, not in Virginia Beach. It's, it's, it's the Navy, right? Yeah, the Navy yeah. is such a fixture in Hampton Roads, specifically Virginia Beach, specifically. And, you know, Hippin being a retired Navy chief, you know, that, that carries a lot of respect with a lot of constituents here. I mean, Ann Hippin has ran for office in the past. You know, she, she's unsuccessfully she's ran for office. But, you know, she is a known quantity amongst a lot of campaigns. I mean, she's been very active, you know, in the party for years. Uh, I mean, I think that she was, I mean, she's been in the race the longest. She raised the most money. Uh, I think a lot of people were surprised how well she did in relation to the other candidates that she's running against. And I think really when you look at this race is that Hippin has been, in my estimation, the more disciplined candidate in relation to the other candidates, especially considering Delegate Fowler or does Delegate Fowler's name ID as a delegate, does that get her across the finish line, even though she may have, you know, inferior resources to what Hippin is bringing to bear. And then again, you know, if you've been following the endorsement track, you know, Hippin was endorsed by uh, uh, Virginia Now, she's endorsed by 314, uh, she just got endorsed by Collective PAC, um, you know, she's been endorsed by Senator uh, Jennifer Boisco, uh, uh, Delegate Sam Rasul, who ran for uh, LG uh, two years ago, has endorsed her campaign as well. So she has a lot of support. I think uh, Delegate Maldonado, she endorsed um, uh, uh, Sean Montero. Uh, I think Dolores McQuinn, she endorsed um, Brandon Hutchins. Um, Brandon Hutchins got a couple of endorsements from a couple of current and former members of city council and school board here in Virginia Beach. So all of them have coalitions that they've been tapping into, you know, but what is interesting is that if you put the aggregate of the coalitions that Hippin has, that Montero has, and what Hutchins has, it's more than a sitting delegate should have. They have more political support combined than the current sitting member of the General Assembly has. And that's very, very telling about the mood of the political atmosphere in Virginia Beach specifically, Virginia more broadly, and I also think it's very telling as far as where the voters may be, you know, as far as maybe wanting someone new that's going to be more centered on them and more so than someone's own individual narrative. So, I mean, that's just kind of my assessment of 96. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I think about it, when you see the three black candidates and then you have Kelly Fowler, she may have an advantage in that if there's a vote split, right? right. I mean, right. if in fact, like, you know, we get like a close race, Fowler could maybe eke it out because in fact, yes, she is a sitting member of the House of Delegates. Uh, right. But she's a sitting member of the House of Delegates outside her typical area and without the full-throated support of the party. And that right. has kind of, that, that kind of has, presents a few hurdles for her, you know? Um, yeah. so we will see again, another very exciting and very interesting race that 
obviously is a bookmark of the evening because this is a place where really the entire control of the House of Delegates can and, and likely will be decided in November when it's all right. said and done. Um, <clears throat> HD07, let me just one second here. Um, okay, HD07. Uh, HD07 involves four candidates once again. Uh, <laughs> this is up here in the Reston Herndon area, up in effectively Nova. Uh, yeah. And we have four, you know, four people who, again, good candidates, et cetera, and so on. I know two of them pretty well, which is Paul Berry and Karen Keyes Gamara. Mm -hmm. uh, the other two candidates, Mary Bartholson and Shamali Hoth, are in the race, are running, you know, energetic races. Uh, one thing I will note about Karen Keyes Gamara is that she is sort of a historic person sitting in this race. As someone who, if you look at the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia and you ask yourself, who in the history of Commonwealth of Virginia who's a black woman has gotten the most votes in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia? Mm -hmm. Karen Keyes Gamara, as a uh, countywide official in Fairfax's, is actually, I think, number two on that list, which is pretty incredible. Of course, Winsome Sears would be number one with over mm -hmm. a million, I think it was a million three or a million two, as our mm -hmm. lieutenant governor. And I think three is Phyllis Randall, and somewhere in there is going to be Jennifer Carol Foy, and of course, Jennifer McClellan. So uh, Karen Keyes-Gamara is sort of a proven vote-getter in that group. But Paul Berry, who's the other person I know, who's in the uh -huh. race, hell of a nice guy. <laughs> and, uh, this is the seat, by the way, vacated by the retirement of Ken Plum. Uh -huh. Ken Plum endorsed Karen Keyes-Gamara. Right. Uh, everyone in the race, of course, was trying to get Ken Plum's endorsement. And Karen mm -hmm. Keyes Gamara, what would you, what would tell you that Karen Keyes Gamara is probably the front runner is that she's constantly under attack by the right. <laughs> okay, right. not only the Sinclair-owned station, Channel Seven, which is always, you know, going after any Democratic official who looks like they're, they're going to do something statewide or is rumored, mm -hmm. or whatever. but Karen Keyes Gamara is really the the uh you know again you can always tell when a black particularly black elected officials really any elected officials but certainly black elected officials you can tell they're they're on the move when they start getting attacked <laughs> okay. yeah when when they when they start seeing those black candidates go super saiyan uh <laughs> you know that's that's when the, the firepower intensifies absolutely that's right. that's right you start seeing the little hits on twitter you start yeah. seeing like, these pieces that you know come out of nowhere so, I mean, this is going to be interesting. I, I think Karen Keyes Gamara is going to win this simply because mm -hmm. she is a proven vote getter. Right. I guess I'm that person who says, oh, I'm not going to make any predictions. And here I am making predictions. But uh, well, you can you, you, you know, can change you can change your uh, opinion <laughs> here, here I am mid, mid podcast. There's no problem. Yeah, but when you have these vote splits, it can get very interesting. <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, it, it's just one of those things. But we'll we'll see again. You know, I mm -hmm. one certainly that I'm bookmarking is is House District Seven. Right. Yeah. The, the interesting thing is that uh, Hoth had the most fundraising last reporting cycle. You know, Keys Gamara came in third. But again, you know, unknown quantities have to raise more money to match name ID um, sometimes. And, you know, if a person has a proven track record of getting votes like Keys Gamara has, you know, 
one would think that she has a, a good opportunity to, you know, win this primary, especially in a four-way split. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the next one I want to look at is HD19. HD19 mm-hmm. involves the granddaughter of Louise Lucas, Natalie Shorter. Right. Uh, Rosia Hansen and Makia Little, who is a former, actually a graduate of Thomas Jefferson High School and a former uh, CIA agent and FBI agent. In fact, I would say one of the best resumes uh, in this cycle. I mean, every now and then you mm-hmm. see a resume where you're like, what the hell is that? I mean, Phil Jones, right. uh, who is the mayor of Newport News, is the other one that has this ridiculous resume as a, a graduate of, uh, he's a graduate of Annapolis and he's a graduate of the of, of Harvard uh, Business School. <laughs> so right. it's like, what, 30, I think he's 32 or 33. So yeah. uh, here we have, here we have uh, Makia Little. And I, and I think, you know, this is again, three good candidates. Rosia Henson is a good candidate. Natalie Short mm-hmm. has been good. And Makia Little has been good. I mean, so it's going to be interesting. She has a, Makia Little has a, an event coming up on Juneteenth that is featuring Elle DeBarge, which I think all those Gen Xers out there voting are going to be very excited about that event. But, but the yeah. other candidates, I mean, Natalie Shorter has been endorsed uh, by a few heavyweights, uh, Janet Howell, I mean, which is, which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. And, and, you yeah, know, it's... it's Repo Ryzen just endorsed her as well. Right, that's right. And so I, you know, I, I think this is going to be a, this is going to be a, a very interesting, very competitive. Uh, I mean, the, the voters have a difficult choice to make. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, and I'll say it, you know, you, you get these situations where you get three or even four really good people on the ballot. It is hard to choose. A lot of times it, it's, it de- depends on when you walk into the voting, to the voting place, who might be uh-huh. standing there and talks to you on your way in? I've had people say that. And uh-huh. This might be one of those. Yeah, it, it definitely could be one of those. I mean, you know, Little has a fundraising advantage, uh, you know, just as a person who's a consumer of, of social media. And, uh, and you know, I, I think, I, you know, I would consider myself someone of a... Uh, you know, an expert in how to use social media politically, uh, you know, a little has been formidable um, in regards to her social media profile. I would classify her probably as one of the top, you know, social media visibility candidates um, in, in the Commonwealth. Um, she seems to have a lot of support. I mean, she's omnipresent. I'm not seeing as much from Henson and, and, and Shorter as well. But, you know, again, I think Shorter has some, some weaponry, you know, being a part of, you know, the, the Lucas political dynasty and, you know, be able to leverage that support as well. I mean, I kind of wonder if Shorter had gotten in the race a lot sooner um, than she did. What would the race look like? Because she got in the race kind of late. And, you know, I know Little had been in the race, you know, going back to, you know, uh, mid-2022. So it's going to be interesting to see how this shakes out. I mean, from just on 30,000 feet, you know, take it for what it's worth. It seems like uh, Little has the inside track, but we'll have to see what shakes out on Election Day. No, exactly. That's going to be... I do think Little has been interesting, too, to be raising small dollar. Uh, uh-huh. He's not doing the whole, ooh, Michael Bills gave me $300,000 thing. And I'm not saying anything is particularly wrong with that. By the way, yeah. people don't know it, Virginia has unlimited, <laughs> which is crazy. You know, people, when I tell yeah. people this outside Virginia, they're like, they have what? So it's unlimited donations. So one candidate could get you know $5 million from one person, and it's perfectly legal in Virginia. 
but but yeah. little little is taking is doing a small dollar game, which is rare, almost like considered risky, right? Yeah. <laughs> to be doing that. And this is and this is one of those races, you know. And there are, and there are a lot of races like this. This cycle based on redistricting that this is really the general election. So whoever wins this primary is going to be the delegate of, you know, that district. Oh hell yeah! There's a lot of ones on the board like that where whoever wins yeah. the primary is going to be the delegate. Yeah. Uh, and speaking and, and mentioning Natalie Shorter and the dynasty with Louise Lucas, we have another dynasty race in HD 79, uh, mm. which is Ray Cousins uh, and Lambert being the dynasty person, <laughs> and Richard mm. and, and Richard Walker. Uh, and and right. Francis Lambert, uh, I don't know what it is. I'm really not paying that much attention to this race other than that I can see that there's a lot of what I would say... Uh, progressive left social media negativity toward Ann Lambert. <laughs> and I'm not sure yeah. why why that is. I don't know whether she's taking Dominion money or I, I don't know what it is, but there just seems yeah. to be this sort of aura of we don't like this person. Um, to to mm-hmm. be real here, I don't know any of these people. This is actually a group that I don't, I don't really know. I've met Ann Lambert once, but I can't say I know her. Uh, mm-hmm. Ray Cousins, I was on a Network Nova thing for 15 seconds. I can't say I know her. And I don't know right. Richard Walker at all, right? So this is. Uh, Go ahead. I, I, I met I met Ray Cousins at a uh, at a Planned Parenthood lobby day. You know, you know, very smart, very energetic. You know, has a lot of charisma. You know, she has a a sizable war chest chest compared to her opponents. I mean, she's. I mean, last reporting cycle, she raised over three hundred thousand dollars compared to nineteen thousand for Lambert and three thousand for Richard Walker. So, you know, cousins could be running away with this thing just for her ability to communicate. Uh, you know, if Lambert has her name ID in that area, you know, that could be a, a benefit. But just looking at these numbers, it looks like it could be cousins race to lose. Yeah, it feels that way. They definitely have yeah. that vibe, and I'm I'm not sure what it is, but I do get that vibe. I, I think my views are very shallow. It's just based on what I'm seeing yeah. on Twitter. I, I don't know, you know, yeah. anything other than that. But yeah, I definitely feel like an energy behind Ray Cousins. <laughs> there's no doubt. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, and so that is the end of our blackity black list. We're probably you know we can come back some other time to talk about you know other races as well, but there's, there's three others that are not blackity black that I think deserve a mention, <laughs> you know, because yeah. uh, they are very exciting. And, uh, here on the I'm black y'all podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, I will, I will start with the one that is, uh, pretty obvious, which is H, uh, SD Senate district 37 Fairfax, uh-huh. uh, for the most part. Chap Peterson, uh-huh. the incumbent uh, state senator, uh, uh, versus Saddam Salim, uh, who uh-huh. is a very active Democratic Party dude that is very uh-huh. running a very energetic race. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, you know, Chap Peterson is kind of another Lionel Spruill situation, a more conservative-leaning uh-huh. Democrat, but not so conservative that he's like, you can't figure out what party he's in, but 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 conservative enough that there's a lot of progressives that are always sort of, you know, uh, perpetually annoyed with Chap Peterson, right? <laughs> like, right. you know, uh, and I, I do think that uh, that's a little overplayed in terms of what happens on election day. But you know, what do you mm-hmm. think? What do you think of this? I mean, it seems like with that race that you know a lot of you know the, the progressive forces really want to get Chap Peterson out of there. I mean, I I, th- I think that you know. The, 
um, that 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 era of you know that centrist Democrat, you know, is really wearing thin with the the, the more uh, modern you know political practitioners in Virginia. You know, I think the younger the electorate, the more progressive they are, the more hardline they are. And really, the young people, if you think about what the issues that they're dealing with from climate change, you know, what we're seeing the effects of it, it today um, in the region because of the Canadian forest fires, uh, reproductive health, you know, uh, young folks are overwhelmingly um, pro-choice. Um, if we look at economic issues, uh, the, the the gun violence issues, you know, all these young folks coming up, you know, where they have to do these, um, you know, these safety drills in schools for mass shootings, you know, they really don't have tolerance for, like, these middle-of-the-road messages. Like, they want decisive action now. And I think Chad Peterson has been someone that has been, you know, you know, more diplomatic, you know, maybe a little moderate, more conservative for some people's appetite. And, um, you know, especially in that Northern Virginia corridor, I mean, you know, the progressive voices are very, very powerful out there. And, you know, and I, and I think they I think they want to take somebody out. And I think that I would think uh, under uh, Joe Morrissey, I think Chad Peterson is um, on that um, on that that uh, that list of people that they want to uh, replace in the Senate. Yeah, no, absolutely. He is close to that. Now, I do think that when it comes right down to it, uh, and certainly I remember this as somebody sitting in the Democratic caucus meetings uh, for lieutenant governor, uh, you know, having to keep an eye effectively on Chap and Sproul <laughs> like the whole time. Uh, I, you know, I will say, though, I would say 90-something percent of the time it, it, they were coming down on the bigger issues with the party. I mean, it was right. certain things you had to, like, like Chap Peterson is very pro-business, so anything that would impact business tax or business regulation he was going to be against. If, right to work. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. And so um, there's things like that. But I, I think, though, the party might be underestimating the extent to which there are people in the Commonwealth who don't mind some, some moderate thinking. And I think that the election of Glenn Youngkin kind of should have taught everybody that. You know? Um, yeah. You got some Democrats that don't necessarily mind somebody, and you saw this with Bob McDonald as well, mm-hmm. who is not as predictable as the usual set of people who, who who we are championing on both sides of the aisle, whether you're Republican or Democrat. There mm-hmm. is a orthodoxy in both parties that, that demands that you do what we say on everything. And then you get these sort of middle-of-the-road, third-way types every now and then. I think as long as you don't do it with big issues like, say, abortion, and Morrissey's doing it with abortions, everybody's, you know, Mm -hmm. losing their mind. But you know what I'm saying? I don't know that Chap is a problem on the bigger side. I think part of the thing that we're seeing politically is that, you know, abortion was kind of like an issue, you know, prior to the Dobbs decision last year where you could just throw it out as red meat, you fire your bases up on both sides. You know, I'm, pro, I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-life. But you, there was never a real fear that the rights were going to be lost or you'd be able to, you know, erode the rights, you know. And now with Dobbs, where you're seeing in these, you know, these hard red states like Alabama and Mississippi and Texas and Florida, where they're doing real damage to reproductive health independence, is that, that reality 
of those policies is affecting political decision making across you know the country so whereas a moderate politician like peterson could flourish prior to like the dobbs um the, the dobbs era you know is going to struggle now because you know people are viewing losing rights as an ex, as an ex, existential threat right when we're looking at book banning when we're looking at attacking curriculums you know the assaults on the lgbtq community more broadly and transgender children specifically uh, just, you know the ongoing never-ending non-stop attack on black folks you know folks don't have an appetite for wishy-washy right they want clearly defined stances on positions and policies and that's what if peterson goes down that will be an indicator that the appetite of the electorate doesn't want you know that middle of the road centrist mindset especially in a democratic primary see i thought that too until you thought about right after trump effectively is off the stage in terms of being in elected office we right. end up with the glenn youngkin run where he right. you know whether it's true or not is not what I'm arguing. He he yeah. ran as someone trying to look moderate, right? And that seemed to work. Okay, so I'm sitting there. Thinking, moderate, yeah, moderate, moderate works. But I, I think the, the Youngkin played it pitch perfect, right? And from the standpoint of he did not want to be assigned with Trump, but he was able to tap into that that anger that Republicans have of losing. Trump in the White House, you know, and, and then you couple that with, you know, the COVID restrictions that a lot of Republican voters simply didn't believe in. They didn't think COVID was real. They didn't care, right. you know, and, and their lives being inconvenienced and this whole thing about parents' rights and, you know, really, I mean, I mean, really a nuanced rhetoric to tap into people's fears about change in, as far as demographics and curriculum and instruction and respecting different people from different backgrounds, you know, so I think he was able to leverage that. So I think I think that what we kind of do in politics sometimes, we look at what happened in the past as meaning what's just going to happen in the future, and that's not always the case. So, I mean, same funny is that Peterson prevails because of name ID and infrastructure, but, you know, if he doesn't prevail, I definitely think it reveals what's going on in the Democratic-based electorate in that primary. Uh, yeah, you say that again. And, and speaking of which, uh, SD11, uh, Cree Deeds versus Sally Hudson. Cree Deeds is a sitting incumbent. Right. Delegate Sally Hudson is a member of the House of Delegates and a professor, college professor. And mm-hmm. they're sitting up there in Charlottesville and that is one of the places where there's a higher turnout in this primary, in early voting mm-hmm. than you right. might typically see. And I can't imagine why that would be the case, right? Uh, and Creed Deeds, again, Creed Deeds, another sort of moderate. I don't think he's as moderate as, you know, Chap Peterson uh, type moderate, but but moderate enough that Sally could flank him. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? A little bit with the progressive wing there. And right. again, this is going to be another test of this question of do you have to be 100% progressive? And of course, every, every district is different. So this is, of course, almost yeah. impossible to measure. But, you know... Is going to be a test. <laughs> so we're going yeah. to see how many votes Sally Hudson gets. I think Deeds has the advantage here. He is a very well liked character, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, but still, she should probably do fairly well in in terms of the number of votes she gets. I mean, what do you think? Well, what I think is really.
really interesting is that when you look at the deeds race, right? So I look at like Repro Rising, like very a progressive reproductive health group, you know, new on the age. They endorse deeds over Hudson, you know, in that race. Wow. Uh, so that's something to you know take into consideration is that you know I think you know Hudson's I mean Hudson has the progressive rhetoric down to you know an exact science you know she's definitely tapping into that energy in her primary but I think these. I think these, I mean, with some of his advocacy around mental health, some of the issues that he's dealt with, um, you know, this is a person who's a former gubernatorial candidate. You know, he has a lot of support, you know, deeply entrenched in that region. So I think that if he's able to pull it out, um, it will be because of those factors, and, you know, and, and also have, you know, really good establishment support. Um, and I think that, you know, that narrative we're talking about as far as, you know, people having an appetite for that, that, that moderate centrist common sense type of politician i think deeds um you know probably out of the three you know races that kind of feature that dynamic you know deeds versus hudson peterson versus saddam and of course morrissey over lashley's air i think that out of the three he's probably the safest of the three as far as prevailing in that primary no yeah i yeah i i, I would i could say it certainly see that one yes yeah um well here we are pulling up on an hour and five minutes of talking, which, you know, <laughs> is not, I, generally speaking, I have no problem talking, but man, it has been an hour. And this is the last one we're going to talk about. Um, you know, shout out, this is a Republican uh, primary that is the more interesting, uh, one of the more interesting, it's, it's not the only interesting Republican primary. Of course, because this is Black Virginia News, usually talking about Democrats, because 99% of the time, Black folks are in the Democratic Party, whether they're running or voting. Don't uh, tell that to uh, Winsome Sears in her press conference. We got to talk about Winsome Sears. Winsome Sears, boy, I tell you. When she gets that little look in her eye, you never know what she's going to say, right? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, she, she was definitely off message yesterday. But yeah, back on this SC17 primary. Yeah, that's a 15-minute you know, drop podcast yeah. in itself. But yeah. uh, SD17 uh, features Emily Brewer. These two Republicans, Emily Brewer and Hermie Sadler. And this is interesting for a few reasons. One of which is that this was the, this was the seat, SD17, that potentially Senator Spruill or Senator Lucas could have moved to to uh-huh. challenge, you know, it ends up being Clint Jenkins on the Democratic side, but it could have very easily have been, um, it, it could have been one of, uh, it could have been Spruill or Lucas. Uh, right. coming in there. Uh, but the question is, do you want to run against race car dude, Hermie Sadler or Emily Brewer? I, I don't, again, I, I have a house in Suffolk, Virginia. Uh, but I really get the sense just from people talking that Sadler, because of his family history, has an advantage here. But still, you have Emily Brewer as the delegate, you know, incumbent figure. And I, I just feel like, well, wait a minute, why wouldn't that be a benefit? But again, an interesting sort of thing to to watch on election night. It's not one of my top five to watch, but it's certainly one I'm going to be scrolling down to. Right. Well, the, the interesting thing was is that wasn't there like a kerfuffle as far as their nominating process there where was. they wanted to go, go to a convention, which would have clearly benefited Brewer, and then you know there was a lot of uh, you know you know, protests from the local Republican establishment and they were able to push it back into a primary. Um, you know, again, you know, this is kind of the politics that the Republican Party plays because they have some really extreme 
Amanda Chase types, you know, that if they were to run in a primary, uh, they would win hands down. But in a, in a more controlled environment like a convention, they don't prevail. And that's how we got Glenn Youngkin, you know. Um, <laughs> that's exactly if, how we got know, Glenn Youngkin. <laughs> you know, if we, you know, if they had ran a primary and Amanda Chase would have, you know, cleaned everybody's clock, we'd be talking about Governor McAuliffe right now. So, um, <laughs> you know, that just. But that kind of, but I, I think that's kind of insightful of what's going on in the Republican Party that they themselves know that they are inundated with unelectable people in Virginia, <laughs> and they have to figure out mechanisms to control um, that. I mean, and that's going to be interesting to see in twenty twenty five because you know I'm pretty sure that you know Sears is thinking about running for governor, and you know she really caters to that hard hard right audience. You know, go guns. You know, every day, and you're going to have Biarritz as probably a more establishment figure. You know, battle, having them battling it, battling it out in 25. So I think what you see in this SD17 race, as far as trying Republican establishment trying to control who gets these nominee these nominations, um, is going to fly up to their, their grassroots base who say not so fast. Yeah, I mean, they the Republicans figuring out that whoops, we we actually can't put anybody on this ballot is something uh-huh. that the Democratic Party needs to to really recognize that, ooh, they've woken up to the fact that they want to at least pretend that they're running like a Bob McDonald moderate-style yeah. campaign, right? Because uh-huh. before that, who did we see? We saw Gillespie try to act like Ralph Northam was an MS-13 member in one of the most racist, openly racist campaigns I think I have ever seen in terms of what yeah. they were putting on the air as commercials. It was right. it was laughable but not funny because they were completely serious. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw Corey Stewart running around, right? That yeah. was a crazy show with Confederate yeah. flags as if it was 1920 again. And then they finally figured out, wow, that ain't working. And, of course, Cuccinelli was the other one who, of course, got beat by McAuliffe. So yeah. uh, they figured out, wow, we can't. We can't actually roll this out onto the ballot. <laughs> you know, we actually right. can't be doing this. And, and of course, you know, it's going to be interesting to see nationally because you see DeSantis with this everything is woke, which is basically a proxy word for black. So yeah. to me, that ain't going to work. I mean, even, even Donald Trump is not stupid enough to try to pull something like that, right? I mean, it's like, really? I mean, you think we're not going to notice that? And and then the backdrop is all the stuff you're doing in Florida, you know, with the banning of books and the shorting HBCU's money and all this other stuff. So I I just think the Republican Party, I mean, again, you would think they would have learned from 2022 cycle because all their Uh crazies lost. So the interesting thing, you know, with, you know, that whole, you know, you know, putting our pinky toe into the Republican presidential primary is that, you know, DeSantis is like a really dangerous personality. You know, uh, right. you know, I mean, I, I think that, you know, he represents something very sinister. I mean, I see DeSantis as an even more sinister figure than Trump himself, um, because when Trump kind of massages you know, he, he gets folks fired up, and he's done some really crappy stuff, and we all know it. This, DeSantis is just is just full-blown, you know, he said, you know, he said he wants to destroy the left in this country, you know, you know, put it on the ash heap of history. You know, that's, you know, that is very divisive rhetoric, you know, I and mean, you're supposed to be the president of the United States. Um, I mean, DeSantis is trying to outflank Donald Trump on yeah. race, on racial grievance. Yeah. I mean, when you're right. trying to outflank Donald Trump on racial grievance, 
That mm. is, and I love it how their strategics is, of course, the Southern strategy, which it has been since mm. the late 60s, right? right. They figure, mm. oh, we'll amp up the white folks and they'll get pissed. And well, Actually, who you're amping up is the other side. So you're, you're, yeah. you're amping up progressive whites that don't want to have anything to do with this. Uh, right. And then you're amping up black voters. <laughs> I mean, like, what? Yeah. So why why are you thinking that you're not going yeah. to get the other side's attention? You know, um, right. and that's an unbeatable coalition when you have progressive white folks voting Democratic plus your black voters and a percentage uh-huh. of your Latino voters. You're not gonna lo- you're not gonna win nationally against that coalition. And that then Barack uh, you, Obama proved. You know, you know, you know what was interesting about this week was. So Maxwell Frost is, uh, you know, millennial congressman out of Florida, mm-hmm. uh, was on was was on the stage with uh, right. Paramore, one of her shows, mm-hmm. and he just came out there and dropped, you know, f bombs like f Ron DeSantis, f fascism, and then you know just kept on dancing with her on stage, and you didn't hear a peep from. <laughs> the Republican apparatus against him. Now, I've known in the past that if a Democrat, Democrats have done far less and have said far less and have earned the ire of the Republican establishment. And the fact that nobody of note within the Republican Party attacked him, that, you know, Hakeem Jefferson had to come out and do, you know, like some kind of, you know, press moment to try to massage the situation, I think it's very telling, you know, about, where the Republican Party establishment feels about Ron DeSantis, that nobody came to his defense when this young Democrat basically said, F you, at a concert. So something to think about. Yeah, I mean, it was on brand in terms of his age and everything else. You know, one of the things, it's not that I'm a big fan of pejoratives and all that in our politics and ramping that type of thing up, but I will say this, at some point, one has to fight fire with fire. And DeSantis is, in fact... uh, DeSantis has brought certain things to a level that is really a throwback to almost the pre... uh, What I would say is the pre-civil rights era of our politics. It was like 40s and 50s level, you know, sort of uh, Lester Maddox-style stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad the young man has noticed. I'll say that. (laughs) You know, I mean, I just think that you can't just be walking in here acting like this is just normal business as usual, you know. Um, This guy's running for all the marbles. And there's absolutely nothing to suggest that DeSantis would get into office and in some way dial back any of his rhetoric or actual policy. You know, no, he would he would abs- he would absolutely be emboldened with that, you know, and, um, you know, it, it is one thing, you know, in, you know, enacting those policies in the state is another thing when you're trying to enact those policies of a, of a country of almost, over 350 million people. So right. um, with which which with, with huge, diverse corridors and voting coalitions. So, you know, to be continued. Absolutely to be continued. Ah, this is Black Virginia News. I know this is a long one. It's a long one because there's a lot to talk about. It's a long one because there's a lot of great races in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, We'll just say generally, congratulations to everybody on the ballot. Uh, It is inspiring to see a lot of these candidates um, from so many different walks of life getting involved in public service, which is not easy in an era of misinformation, disinformation, social media popping off at all hours of the night. 
And in the case of the House of Delegates in the Commonwealth of Virginia, not a whole lot of money. Uh, the senators make uh, uh, 18 and the House of Delegates makes 17. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just unbelievable to me. You know, as somebody who worked uh, in um, state government in New York, I still am shocked by what the members of the uh, General Assembly of Virginia make. Uh, so I would say congratulations to everybody running um, and thanks for getting in there. And Maurice, you got some final words? Uh, just looking at a post um, saying that per Governor Yunkin's directive, the State Air Pollution Control Board just withdrew Virginia from the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. <laughs> yeah, of course he did. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you know, just, I mean, just, we need to do a podcast on the fraud that is Glenn Young. <laughs> you, you are just definitely feeling that. I mean, I yeah. really feel like Glenn Youngkin is a creation of weak politics by a Democratic Party who should have known better. So we would have a very interesting discussion. I mean, he, he happened to hit the Democratic Party of Virginia at a time when um, I think there was a mistake or miscalculation in what we would be facing, really. From from yeah. uh, from a party that has figured out the riddle of you just can't put something. We should have known that Amanda Chase was not going to be the nominee. Right. Okay, so that, I know that's complicated. There's no way that Terry McAuliffe could have been the amazing Kreskin and known that Amanda Chase was not going to be the nominee. But I'm just saying, right. some of that is something that we will be talking about in the podcast. That's an hour long discussion. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's an hour-long discussion. We, de we definitely probably bring in some air support to have some different voices on that one. But, uh, you know, I mean, because the thing is, I, I'll, I'll say this, you know, before we conclude, because we have been on for over an hour and I'm hungry. Um, <laughs> that, um, one, I think that Youngkin was a very good politician, but he's a very bad elected official. And um, the goodwill that he engendered during his gubernatorial run has not translated over to his stewardship of the Commonwealth. And Virginia is not a hard right state anymore. You know, it's, 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 it's very purple, light bluish, if you ask me. Um, and, and I think Yunkin, you know, is trying to import some very radical ideology and policies into Virginia that, you know, it's going to be a lot of resistance to it. So, uh, we'll, 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 but I definitely think that his his term as governor definitely needs to be deeply examined, and, and really, you know, the uh, the wool needs to be needs to be pulled away from people's eyes of you know how how much of a fraud he is as 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 an executive in the Commonwealth. Yeah, I mean, we we'll, we'll be talking about that soon. There's a lot to talk about with Glenn Youngkin, including the question yeah. of whether or not he's going to be running for president. Yeah. So everybody, you got a lot in there. We got a lot in there. We we talked about races. We talked about national politics, and we talked about Big Glenn. I, I refer to him as Big Glenn. Okay. So he's Thank you for listening uh, to I call him Red, red Sweater Vest. You know. <laughs> so. Uh, Thank you for listening to Black Virginia um, News. So anyway, that's it. I'm Lauren Burke, uh, and I'm really delighted to be talking to Maurice Hawkins. And Maurice Hawkins is right. We can get some other players on this field of us of us yak yammering and uh this is black virginia news <laughs>